Welcome one and all to another episode of Left Turn Canada. Andy Burkowski, Christo Avalise here. We have a lot to dive into today, but I wanted to start off with uh, something that at least in my household and, and probably in many households uh, around the country that are listening to the sound of my voice right now is almost a religion. My family's obsession with hockey and even the uh, World Juniors is close to a religion. And I was never really worked on me. I was never really proselytized, but it was always a really big deal. So I spent a lot of my childhood and adolescence within that culture. And uh, brothers and other you know, members of my family that played and, you know, were just always a part of it. Hockey was always on uh, in our house. And there was always, especially in the, the junior level, this uncomfortable feeling, at least for me, someone who wasn't indoctrinated by it, that wasn't sipping the Kool-Aid, that felt kind of uncomfortable. This this and it's it's well documented, you know, this kind yeah. of this broy, machoistic uh, mentality or or culture that has been poisonous. And we are finding out finally in the last uh, several weeks how that has actually created crimes and massive sexual assaults. So we want to start with the first thing Christo is the scandal that's going on with Hockey Canada. The CBC did a really great uh, expose looking at junior hockey players and found that since 1989, the police. So these are the ones that actually went to the police, which, as we all know, I think some estimates are about 30 percent of actual sexual assaults. Yeah. For. Yeah. This is really one of those things where it's like you can you can be fairly certain that not all incidences have been reported. And there's 15 incidents of group sexual assaults. The the big one that actually led to this uh, big expose was one that happened, I believe, in London, Ontario in 2008. Uh, a woman settled a lawsuit and said that she was sexually assaulted by eight Canadian Hockey League players. They were members of Canada's World Junior Team. Many of them are NHL players now, and they're still... NHL players, they get to do that. But the really insidious thing is the fact that, you know, Hockey Canada and, and junior hockey, you know, growing up and playing hockey is such a business. It's it's such an expensive yeah. proposition. And it was found out that at least a portion of those fees that, you know, the parents would pay for their kids. And there's always so many and they're always so hidden and strange. Yeah. Yeah, went hockey's to very expensive. It's, yeah. it's expensive sport, right? And probably one of the most expensive mainstream sports at least right? oh yeah absolutely the price yeah. of just yeah. and it, it, you can start it really early we have this massive culture here where it's allowed well it was discovered that at least a portion of that was always airmarked financially to cover the lawsuits that would come from their players sexually assaulting women mostly in these group settings so you've heard about this just the horrific acts that a lot of corporations have but to know that this organization that is you know hockey canada trying to promote this idea of you know how important this is for young kids to get involved and you know the fees are commensurate with what these services provide they already knew this was happening and wanted to make sure they had the finances ready so when yeah. you know they were doing their end of the year taxes oh yeah i want to make sure you know we don't get screwed on that one so it's just horrific stuff and uh it's like the yeah. cost of doing business right yeah, but- like yeah yeah well that's what you know what i mean but like that's mm-hmm. how they see it and that's like the issue, right? It's mm-hmm. like it's a line in the budget. Well, we got hockey stick line, <laughs> gas for the you know the the car like you know the the team bus line, and then like sexual assault cover money line, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's shocking. It's more it, like I suppose a lot of people who are yeah, been covering uh, hockey in particular or just sports in Canada because I had some familiarity of that with in my radio days. You know, the people that do that can speak to a culture that perhaps allows this, a culture within oh, yeah. the sport that is not updated itself to any sort of, let alone progressivism, but just any things that aren't crimes. And I think that the really scary thing for me about all this is the fact that, you know, Hockey Canada is saying the, I think the president and like the board are now quitting and, you know, now they're going to get new people and it's all going to be great now, but there's no concerted effort to actually address these sort of systemic issues that lead to dozens, 
likely incidents of mass sexual assaults by hockey players. And the fact that it's, you know, that there isn't willing to have a change, I think speaks to something that's uniquely Canadian. I think that, you know, in the religion of hockey, we cannot second guess it. You know, I think honestly, you saw what happened with Nora Loretto, right? Like, yes, I did. Go ahead with that. Yeah. And so, you know, she commented after the Humboldt crash. And of course, those that's a very different scenario, right? Those those were victims of a tragic accident. But Mm -hmm. but there was, you know, there was just a question about how, like, this got a lot of outpouring. Not that that was wrong necessarily, but that like. This is obviously something that's only happening in the culture of hockey, but also who those those young those young men, those boys and young men were. Um, and and she got just you know destroyed for it and got either blacklisted or gray listed from some mm-hmm. sources. And yeah, it, it, there, there really is this sense that there are some things that can't be questioned. And that's just, you know, the just standard misogyny, but also just like, you know, like the team, the, the way the team culture works of like you know, like probably silence to protect one another. And it's mm-hmm. like, you're a brotherhood and that probably makes it difficult for some of the, 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 and some of these people are boys, right? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the boys in the room to, um, to speak up. Right. And this is not me defending that, but it's saying like, if you create a culture of like silence and mm-hmm. almost like, frankly, like how the, how the, the fucking cops work in some ways, right. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, you know, like, you know, the one of the reasons it's hard to have quote unquote good cops is because the system doesn't allow it. Right. And, yeah. you know, it makes this system makes a lot of people complicit. Right. In very ugly ways. And you're right. I mean, I think it's good. The board resigned. It was actually a rare moment. There's mm-hmm. a really good, I think, statement online somewhere where it was like Hockey Canada did what almost nothing else could, which was unite the liberals, NDP and conservatives. Yeah. All three of the parties, <laughs> I believe, were calling for the heads of the board. Yeah. You know, it's rare to see all three parties agree. On, on, on many things, and, and they did in this case, uh, because it's just so egregious. But look, I mean, this does need to happen, and maybe some positive changes will come about. But yeah, you're right. It's There's not a fundamental reckoning with hockey culture like in, in the country, because it's not like the, the, the these boys, you know, because they, as you note, these are the elite of the elite. Many of the guys that play in the World Juniors end up in the NHL. Most of them do. Mm-hmm. And most of them end up um, not just being NHL players, but being but being quite good. These are the, the best Canadian boys of each generation. So they often tend to be first and second round picks, you know, mm-hmm. so they're, 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 you know, some of them bust, but most of them end up being quite good. Um, but, you know, they show up there. They've played hockey all over the country in different areas and, you know, in different ways. And, you know, that culture obviously comes from somewhere before they get to the world juniors, mm-hmm. right? Before they get, to the highest level. It starts other places as well. And I don't know if the board of hockey Canada quitting is going to, is going to solve that. Right. Even yeah. And I guess, you know, how board. many gold medals do they have to win where it's finally, this had to be addressed, you know, cause the Canadian world junior team is famously very, very good. Like they've won yeah. the gold tons of times. And the well, fact a that money it was generator and the, yeah. the, the, the world juniors, uh, you know, especially not this year because of COVID and all that, but usually during that Christmas break, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big it's venue. A big deal. The NHL slows down. So it's kind of like the hockey thing between kind of Christmas and like early New Year's, right? So mm-hmm. it's a, yeah, it's like a yearly tradition. Uh, you know, I've you know, and I've certainly watched a lot of it growing up as well. But uh, this this is like it's a big story, and I think that it does seem that this time, maybe more than other times, people are more willing to kind of call out the hockey culture. And you saw it with sponsors, big sponsors, mm-hmm. Tim Hortons and Nike, and I think Canadian Tire and all these companies pulled their sponsorship and some of them and I and I respect this quite a bit, you know, pulled it specifically from like elite men's hockey but not women's hockey. Yeah. Which is good to see because we have not seen these stories, to my knowledge, from women's sports. And I've seen some studies from the United States that suggest that these toxic patterns are more prevalent in in, in male team sports than in female team sports. Mm -hmm. Specifically this is a problem of men's elite men's hockey uh, at the at the junior level. Maybe more than with women. Although I'm sure that, you know, there are issues with women's hockey as well. Yeah, I just I would like to see because it's a little easy for you and I to have this opinion on this. We don't deal in in sports news. It's not like we get to experience the culture, but we're not really part of it when it comes to this. And I really think that if this is important to you, you have to call on the people that you love that talk about this stuff 
and make sure that they are saying and believe the right sort of thing. You know, if there's someone out there that you really, really like, who is a great commentator that, you know, really understands the game, but is not willing to say, you know, hockey is not worth this. Like hockey is definitely not worth this then, you know, call them to task because that's just not good enough. And I, I want to touch on a little bit of what you said before. You know, if what was the polling that we saw here in Canada, that if it was only young women, it's not exactly related, but it was only young women voting versus like young men, how much better our country would be because young women tend to vote, you know, very yeah, progressive. Young, and, yeah, or just like young women as opposed to the general electorate, right? Young yeah. men do vote more conservative than young women, but they still have generally better voting patterns than older people. But yes, if like, if you always see the polls, it's like young women, 18 to 34, that was Bernie's base. That was Corbyn's base. That was the NDP's base. Uh, that's also Quebec Solidaire, at least in polling. That's where they polled. The, we'll talk a bit about Quebec later. That's when they polled the best were among young women in particular uh, and, and young people. Um, yes, we should just let young women, <laughs> young women vote. We'd be we'd be way better off if they if they got if they got all the power. There we go. Indeed. So let's that's enough of this depressing thing. I, I, I hope there is something of a change with this. And it, at the very least, you know, it does seem like people who are being abused are now able to tell their story because there's some yeah. momentum behind it. And there's other so, things too, like it, yeah. it sort of, yeah, we'll just kind of move on, but you know, like other things where players have been more willing to come forward because mm -hmm. a lot of players have been abused by coaches and, and, and authority oh, yeah. figures, both at the junior level and, and even, you know, and even at the pro level. And so whether it's the players as perpetrators or players as victims, mm -hmm. there's, there's been, uh, uh, there's been, a, a growing desire to talk about that. And that is good. And that is a change. Uh, it's not over yet. It's only really just beginning. But the fact that this is actually being talked about is is is, is quite new. It's quite yeah. new. I'm happy Don Cherry isn't on TV to talk about this. Yes, we'll just yes, put it that yes. way. All right. Let's go to Alberta now. Uh, again, this is the, the biggest of news. Of course, I went to the Discord to ask our little community if you want to be a part of it. Patreon.com slash Left Turn Canada. Just a buck a month. You know, some great folks there. And one of the continued comments that we got this week, Krista, was, to put it very succinctly, is Alberta just fucked? Now, if you don't know what we're talking yeah. about, they have a new premier, Daniel Smith, the former Wild Rose party leader, won final ballot with 53.77% of the vote. Her big campaign, among other things, the thing that she was pushing was the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Now, Krista, what exactly is that? And just a little semicolon there, is Alberta fucked? Alberta may be fucked. <laughs> they may be. They may be fucked. I mean, look, I think, I think a couple things to note is that um, Smith does seem crazier than Jason Kenney. Mm -hmm. Like one of the reasons Jason Kenney got turfed was not, or really the reason he got turfed wasn't simply because, like wasn't for the reasons we would want him to be turfed. It was yeah. largely because <laughs> that his own party, at least uh, basically about half his party, remember just under half of his party's membership, turfed him largely because he was too pro-vaccine and too pro-mandate. And of course, Alberta was one of the, the weaker provinces on that front, right? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Kenny did, Kenny did things and largely played along during early portions, but was one of the first premiers to sort of back out, even though it was even before, like, vaccinations became widespread and they had the stampede. And, you know, I think he kind of got caught in that. Plus, the polling for him was abysmal, and I think there was a sense that there's no way this guy's going to win. Even, you know, mandates vaccines aside, we need we need someone new. So yeah. I think Smith is 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 more extreme uh, in her in her ideology and in her presentation. She's already signaled that she's going to replace the vaccine, like the chief medical officer. And she's mm -hmm. already talking about how that unvaccinated people are some of the most oppressed people in like in modern Canada, like in our that's like who it is. So I think you're going to see someone move to the right of Kenny. <laughs> There's a few reasons why maybe Hold on, Chris, so can you say that again? I'll, yeah, I'll find the, the clip, to, but it's that, what did she say? She basically said that they were like the most oppressed people, I think. Wow. Let me see if I could get me out. Oh yeah, right here. They're the most yeah. discriminated against this, group yeah. that I've yeah. ever witnessed in my life. Right now you're hearing the premier say that. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Sorry. Continue. Sorry to yeah, take yeah. So you can there. see, like, I don't even know if Kenny went that far, obviously. Yeah. So. 
You know, it's a good sign or a bad sign, but it, it, it's a signal that, yes, maybe Alberta is fucked. Now, there's a few things to note. One, before Kenny was replaced, the polling for the Alberta NDP was quite good. Sometimes mm-hmm. up 10, 15 points on the uh, conservatives. And first past the post, uh, Alberta is a rare province where maybe first past the post actually benefits the left um, because it's largely a two-party system, but the NDP's vote is is they, they basically get no votes outside of the cities and mm-hmm. the you know the UCP runs up huge margins in the rural areas basically meaning that if the NDP can be tied in the polling they would likely win like in a tie the NDP likely wins maybe even down a point or two because their vote efficiency in Calgary carries them through cuz they dominate Edmonton the rural areas are dominated by um by the conservatives and then Calgary is the, is the battleground. And in a close election, those, those seats flip NDP, right? You know, at the provincial Mm -hmm. level, right? Federal is different, but, um, but basically, uh, you know, the, the polling, we haven't seen updates yet after Kenny left. Well, he just left obviously, but after he, he basically said, I'm going to resign once we elect a new, a new leader. Um, the polling went back to being pretty much a tie leaning UCP. But we have to see under Danielle Smith. On the one hand, maybe the polling will continue as it's been going, which would give them, you know, a, a narrow lead going into an election, I believe, next year. But on the other hand, it you know, maybe as people start to see what she's doing and what she believes and more and more people start to pay attention outside of just, you know, UCP members that were voting in the leadership race, then they might start to think, OK, everything we hated about Kenny, we also hate about this person, maybe more. <laughs> And so they will, um, you know, the polling could revert. Uh, another thing is she's only, like, at least for this term, she actually doesn't have much time until the next election, right? You know, the Alberta, I think, election is scheduled to take place in 2023, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it says here the Alberta election by law will be held in May of 2023. So she really doesn't even have a year, right? Like, yeah. like she, you know, it's we're, we're, we're in mid-October now. So she's basically got you know, the better part of a year, but not, not that much time to actually implement a whole big vision. Also, so she may well lose that election. And then, you know, she was only premier for like eight, nine months. Uh, convert it additionally. Uh, and I don't know what this means. Maybe this makes her crazier. Maybe this makes her less crazy. I don't know. She did not win a smashing mandate, mm-hmm. right? Like this is not, this is not, um, this is not uh, Pierre Polyevra, who we just yeah. saw, win uh, on the first ballot with a you know massive victory. You know she only won on the final ballot, and the final ballot was fifty three percent, and the other person, of course, had about forty six percent, so fifty four to forty six basically. Now she did have a big lead on the first ballot. She had forty one percent on the first ballot, so she clearly had the plurality. But what ended up happening is that clearly as the she didn't pick up votes all that efficiently as people dropped off. Mm-hmm. And so there's clearly a, a big portion of the party that was with Travis Tabes, who is a uh, an MLA. Additionally, she is not a member of the legislature right now. Danielle Smith yeah. is not a member of the legislature. That doesn't mean she's still premier, uh, but mm-hmm. she's not she's not even in the, the legislature there. Uh, won't be at question period. She'll effectively have to pick someone. And there's a sense that she's afraid to run in Calgary Elbow. Now, Calgary Elbow is a district in Calgary. And that district is currently, I believe it, I, I believe someone, someone just recently resigned. And that, and that is a, and it is a UCP riding. But somebody, I believe, the, 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 the seat is now vacant, I believe. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's it's they they didn't win a huge margin there, and so maybe that's a sign that she's afraid to run there because you think she would want to send a message. You run in a by election, you get elected. Obviously, she chooses when the by election are called. She's the premier, right? Calls a by election, but the fact that she's not running there really, I think, concerns a lot of people maybe in the party that thinks okay, she can't even win in Calgary. And keep in mind, this seat. Is not like it's not a, a traditional UCP seat or a Wildrose seat. It leaned historically more PC, but it was Ralph Klein's seat, and after that, Allison Redford. So at least two premiers 
have held this seat before. Mm. For I don't know if that's a coincidence, you know what I mean? But two yeah. premiers, uh, Alison Redford and Ralph Klein, uh, at least have held this seat. So it's probably a kind of influential seat. I, I, I assume this is a, is this a, uh, maybe it's a suburban Calgary riding, I'm not sure. But in probably. any case... It is, it, you know, she's not running there. And finally, even things like on the Alberta the Alberta sovereignty bill, at first she was kind of posturing like she was going to ignore the charter and ignore Supreme Court rulings and do all of that BS where she was basically just going to do that. And apparently she's backed down and said that, you know, this bill will follow the rule of law, which basically <laughs> means that it really won't necessarily do what she said it was going to do. Yeah, uh, which was, you know, just stop the federal government and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I do think Alberta is probably a little bit more likely fucked than they were, uh, uh, you know, a few days ago when she got picked. But um, it remains to be seen how much damage she can do, at least until she secures a mandate from the people. Right. Mm. Like not not that like, oh, she's waiting to get a mandate to do stuff like she clearly has a majority in the legislature and blah, blah, blah. But yeah. like. She doesn't have that much time, doesn't have a seat, um, didn't win by a big, big, big margin in her leadership race. I think if, if Alberta's got a chance to get rid of her and put Notley in and, and, and basically make this question largely moot because she doesn't have a lot of time until the next election. You got to think it's not just like, you know, next election's in May, but usually you call an election at least a few weeks early. So it's like April, maybe March. So, you know, I don't even know how much time she's going to have to govern. She might even get like a good six months to actually govern you got christmas mm -hmm. break you know what i mean like there's not a lot for her to to do right not a lot of time for her to in, do. in that case do you think you know the fact that she is kind of stepping away from how uh intense this sovereignty act was supposed to be you know what she was spouting beforehand and she only has a little bit of time you know worst case scenario would she even have the ability Seemingly, she doesn't really want to, because why would she now would be the time to say, yeah, we're going full steam ahead not to take a step back. But based on what you're saying, do you think she would have the, even the ability to really shake things up? I mean, I think she probably could, of course. Yeah. You know, in that six um, months. Yeah. Yeah, I think she could. But like, I think that, you know, she has to settle in. And, and I just I don't know. I think that this is different than if she you know, was replacing a premier who resigned halfway through a term and won a big smashing mandate and was already in the legislature. I don't know. I feel like this is starting off in a weird direction. And maybe she also doesn't want to go too extreme too quick because they're just coming up to an election. And mm. it's like usually what premiers will do is you make unpopular decisions shortly after getting elected uh, in the hopes that, you know, like Justin Trudeau broke his electoral pro pro reform promise pretty quick. Same mm -hmm. thing with Francois Legault. We'll talk a bit about Quebec later. Uh, as such that, you know, many people still remembered and were pissed, but not as many people will be remembered and be as pissed as if you break a promise six weeks before an election, mm. right? So I don't know. Alberta is more fucked, but not fully fucked, is, would be my answer. Man, well, I just, because I'm, again, not as connected and maybe some of our uh, different compatriots on the Harbinger podcast network, of course, Alberta Advantage. Yeah, and also that's the thing, to too. That. This is an outside obser observation. Yeah. Neither Andy or I have don't, uh, live in, 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 uh, in Alberta or anywhere near Alberta, of course. We live in Ontario. So, I mean, consult with the Alberta Advantage folks and other people like Jeremy Appel, who has like a, the, the Orchard mm -hmm. and... And, and, and progress report uh, who do you think a lot of Alberta focused stuff they'll give you a much better on the ground thing I do think she's incredibly dangerous I really do I yeah. don't want to downplay that I just think that the context of like when and how she was picked sort of gives her her doesn't really give her like a, a, she's not hitting the ground running in that sense right or even like a polyevra who gets selected as leader but he obviously has no power right now right he's in opposition and there's a kind of like uh you know deal that's going to run probably for the next couple of years but like you know he's clearly set up so that when he does take power if he does he'll have a clear mandate and things like that this is a weird start for for Danielle Smith's tenure as UCP leader i think who do you think's more dangerous for Canada uh Daniel Smith or Pierre Polyevra 
Oh, probably Polyevra because he's he's yeah. he's a federal leader. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know who's more extreme on their views. Maybe Smith, maybe, but like relative to what you'd expect for a Canadian, a right wing Canadian prime minister versus a right wing Alberta premier, he might be more out of step. If that makes mm. sense, like yeah. like you you don't want to downplay extremity, you know, extreme politicians, but you know, P- Pierre Polyevra might be to you know noticeably to the right of Harper. Maybe we'll have to wait and see. He could just be doing all of this. And once he gets elected, he becomes Stephen Harper. And like, yeah. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to downplay the damages of the Harper years, but he might end up just being like Harper because that's the only way you can run a conservative government is you got to like crack the whip and keep the, the true nutters under control. And Pierre Polyevra is just going along with it now because that's the way you win elections and raise money. But then you have to govern. Right. And, and Harper, you know, kind of put a, put a leash on the social conservatives. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, but I, I, I definitely think he's more dangerous. Uh, yeah. but you know, in the immediate term, I mean, he's the leader of the opposition and she's a premier. So maybe right now she is more dangerous, but like the potential I think is greater for Polyevra. I, I do wonder what the, um, popularity behind the Alberta Sovereignty Act, at least within, you know, the conservative realm means for, you know, we hear this a lot when talking about politics, and it's a lot of what we've heard in the United States over the past, you know, six years. But this idea of the schism, real geographical and more divided schism than ever between anything that is remotely conservative and, uh, you know, remotely liberal. Do you think that, like, just as an outside observer, this seems like it would be a step further in making sure, just even by the nature of what it is, right, the Alberta Sovereignty Act, that that divide is now stronger than ever. So I'm wondering if this could possibly in any way, if you're looking at circumstances here, reinvigorate or maybe reestablish the bona fides of the NDP across this country as a real alternative, the only real alternative to this sort of, you know, complete conservatism, or even in some cases, I would say close to even fascism that's found in, in pockets of this country? Or do you think maybe this just reinforces the more middling neoliberal view of, you know, look how crazy this side is, look how crazy that side is. We need to go back in the middle and be sensible here. What do you think could mm-hmm. be the uh, the ripples out from this for Canada as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about individual party politics. I definitely think that polarization is a big issue. I think one of the ways to solve it, and I don't think we get it, which is shitty, is electoral reform, right? Yeah. I have to say, we've, I support electoral reform for a bunch of reasons. But actually, one of the reasons I do support it in a country like Canada, as I've heard arguments that 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 proportional representation will create regionalism, and I just don't buy that. I mean, hypothetically, mm-hmm. it's possible that you could see a maritime party or something like that, but we already have regionalism. We have the conservatives largely dominate two provinces minimum. We have yeah. the you know in a, just two elections ago or so, the 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 liberals won every seat in the four eastern provinces, right? Like every single one of the thirty-two seats. They won in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland, the entirety. Um, And so whether it's that or whether it's the fact that the conservatives in this election uh, won every seat in Saskatchewan, I believe. And in the previous election, they won every seat in Saskatchewan and all but one in Alberta. Like, there's clearly a failure of our system at the federal level uh, to, to really represent people where they live, right? Mm. And I think that, for example, there are conservatives that live in downtown Toronto. Yeah. There are. Absolutely. Uh, there are. Bay liberal, Street is Bay yeah. Street for a reason. Like, well, yeah, well, yeah well, there are there are liberals that live in rural Alberta and NDPers that live in rural Alberta or NDP and, and lots of NDPers and liberals that live in the cities and, and, and medium sized towns of those provinces. Right. Um, and so I think that one of the one of the ways you solve it is through proportional representation. One, Alberta would get way more attention. They're always like, why are we always ignored? Well, it's because you fucking vote the conservatives 90% of the time and give 95% of your seats to the conservatives. Of course you're ignored. Whereas Ontario, BC, and Quebec always have at least two, three, sometimes four parties competing for seats, meaning every pro- everybody in those provinces, all the parties have to pay attention to those provinces and their needs. Yeah, I wonder and- where a vote matters less. 
than in Alberta or, you know, in some of the liberal swaths here in the, uh, you know, in Ontario. In terms I'm of a region, who's... it's probably yeah. Alberta and Saskatchewan. I mean, maybe yeah. you can make a case for the Maritimes in some elections, but it's probably Alberta and Saskatchewan because like they they just they they outside of a few urban ridings they vote conser- at the federal level they vote very heavily conservative and unlike at the provincial level where there's smaller ridings and the system is different um you know a good chunk of even the edmonton and calgary seats federally go to the conservatives whereas there's mm. more seats to go to the ndp provincially in those areas so i definitely think that this is an, a growing issue because it it creates a, a, it, it gives parties less representation i mean a, Parliament might be different if there were one or two conservative MPs from downtown Toronto and more NDP MPs and liberal MPs from rural areas, especially in the prairies. Right. You mm-hmm. know, uh, that would be that would be a, a big change. And I just don't see that. So I, I see the trend continuing, frankly. Uh, part of it is also just partisan politics. Like it's not exclusively. But, you know, if the cons- if a conservative premier gets elected, I, I suspect that the the Alberta rhetoric cools down a bit, right? You know, that's part of it mm. too, right? You know, okay. if, like if Polly Evra wins, I bet all of a sudden a lot of conservative Albertans become much more immediately uh, uh, admir- uh, uh, they, they, they start to admire the, uh, uh, the federal government the federal just government, a little yeah. bit more, just a little bit more, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, all, all of those sorts of things. So... Yeah. Interesting. So I, I still, I guess that does, you know, address this idea of the solution to this problem. But do you think maybe it's just a little overblown then? Like perhaps these are just the loudest voices that are following this polarization? Or are we now, because it is regionalized in this way, so por- polarized that, you know, the, the chances of a change are just, you know, not going to happen under the system that we have currently? I'm not sure. I, I don't see electoral reform happening. No, unfortunate yeah. as it is. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I definitely see the polarization continuing. I don't know. I don't know what fixes it. I don't know at this point. Yeah, like, this hypothetically, class-based politics from the NDP mm-hmm. could help because it could reach working class people of all backgrounds. But, you know, even when the CCF was socialist, you still had regionalism and tensions of that sort. And I don't know. I don't know. Right, right now, and a lot of people identify by regions and you know, even now within within the NDP, you have the Saskatchewan NDP sort of disinviting Jugmeet from their event in part mm-hmm. because I think the NDP's position, which isn't even that environmentalist, but the NDP's very modest environmentalism has made that is is seen as unpopular in a province that increasingly derives a lot of its like wealth and power from fossil fuels and other things like that. And it it's you know it's i don't know how the party deals with that right and it seems mm-hmm. like even the ndp is is affected by regionalism in that sense right within its own within its Absolutely. own party how does the federal ndp operate differently from the various provinces right and and clearly in some ways we haven't figured out that answer i mean even still it's like you know dealing with the bc ndp right and like when they like just do fucking horrendous shit we'll talk a bit about some of the mm-hmm. you know the federal party finds it very difficult uh, to criticize them, even though if we're being really, 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 really honest, we would criticize that stuff till the cows come home if it was any other government. If it was yeah. <laughs> a federal liberal government or if it was a provincial government of any other stripe, we would criticize it. You know? Yeah, it's just I the thing that I'm not seeing here, and maybe I'm missing it and you can you can clarify, but with this increased polarization, I'm not seeing... The alternative, whether it is kind of growing in the NDP across the country, like I thought it would be at least a more like as Alberta and conservatives become closer and closer to fascism, I'm not really seeing uh, the NDP get closer and closer to socialism, at least from my perspective. It does. It does seem like the movement is harsher, more to the right. Yeah. Which is my concern, right? Because I always thought that maybe the swing of the pendulum would at the very least have some sort of, you know, adequate response because of the material circumstances. But so far, I'm not seeing that. It does just seem like the the more they swing right, you know, where the Overton window is just shifting that way. It's not actually taking this big swing. So that's... uh, 
a little more troubling than I thought it would be. Uh, do, is there any circumstance? How do we get any? Is there any way to take advantage of that? If you know you're someone like you or I, or you know those listening to our voices right now that generally support the NDP but would like it to be a lot more leftist in their ideals. Is there anything with this circumstance that maybe could get us to that outcome better? Or am I just, you know, blowing smoke here? I, I don't know. I mean, really, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure at this stage. I think that we definitely need to keep fighting for these issues. We definitely need to push for the left within the NDP and, be, and especially in many ways beyond it. The labor movement and social justice movements remain critical. But mm -hmm. right now, you're right. Like the, the, the NDP has moved left in the last few Absolutely. years, but Absolutely. it's it's not nearly enough and it's not as much as the conservatives have moved right. Or even if the conservatives are comfortable expressing how right wing they are. Mm. Yeah. Alrighty. So let's you, you hinted at the BC NDP. So why don't we just quickly go into that before we finish off today, talking about Quebec and, you know, Quebec Solidaire and everything that happened in in their election. So, Christo, for those that are not aware what has been going on with the BC NDP and why should the great listeners of Left Turn Canada give a shit about it? Well, I mean, we should care because like we're, we're a Canadian, we're not just an Ontario podcast, despite, yes. you know, <laughs> you know, I, 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 despite a lot of our uh, uh, focus on Ontario, which I think is somewhat fair. We've just had, you know, an Ontario election. Both of us live mm -hmm. in Ontario, all of that. But, you know, the reality is that, um, uh, this matters because it is the the one NDP government currently in government right now in this country, and they're going through a leadership race. Right, John Horgan is stepping down for his health and uh, and all of that. And you know, despite we have many criticisms, we wish him well in that regard. But the party is going to pick a new leader, and like with the UCP, this person instantly becomes premier in effect because the BC yeah. NDP have a majority government, and so the person that wins this is going to become premier. And so, uh, you know, David Elby is, is running, but like, you know, the, the, that was kind of seen as the, uh, David Elby is running and he was kind of seen as the, the, um, the heir apparent, right. Uh, mm. To be the next leader. But, you know, um, there were, there's just challenges to that, right. A lot of people don't just want to see him become the leader without any sort of, you know, uh, any any sort of like you know pushback they want they don't want a coronation mm -hmm. right they want yeah they want an actual they want an actual challenge and they 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 might be getting that right but now people are <laughs> mad about this happening right and so it's just it's such a mess right like the i'm trying to just pull up just like the 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 the, the, the details here uh yeah, it's weird to see the like gatekeeping in a way that I, I perhaps didn't expect. And just like this idea of like, you know, you're not ND, you're not the right type of NDP. You know, maybe you're yeah. a Green Party loyalist in disguise. Like, it's just it's almost a little embarrassing. Yeah, like Anjali Apadurai, I think is right. And if I've said that incorrectly, my apologies. But she's running. And to be clear, she is an NDP -er, right? I, yeah, I, she's she's not. Like a party insider necessarily, but she ran for the federal party in the last election, uh, and, and and did quite well, right? Did quite well, um, and almost won a seat in Southern BC, um, mm -hmm. and then was was touted by everyone as this young up and comer. She's a young woman, you know. She's you know doing such a great job, and now that she's running, a lot of people are like, well, actually, we don't like this. Because she is, you know, dragging in people who aren't members of the party, who aren't convert, con committed to building the party. She's trying to get green members. And the most egregious thing, there's really two egregious things here. One, the BC fucking NDP. Look, one, this makes us look like such fucking amateurs. Yeah, right? it does. Like, I know we're not members of the BC NDP, but it got, and people probably know this if they listen to us. If you're a member of the NDP, you're a member of the NDP, both federally mm -hmm. and provincially, right? It's 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 a federated party, right? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a federated party. There's, there's pluses party. and minuses of that, which we well, discussed exactly, a lot. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses, yeah. uh, but we're a federated party. So if you move to BC, like if you, you can't be a member of the, the BC NDP and the federal liberals. It's not allowed. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, um, it so it affects all of us. And they're basically going to the Green Party, the BC Greens, and saying to them, we think a bunch of your members are quitting the BC Greens with the express purpose of trying to go and vote for uh, for uh, Anjali. Uh, and, and, and we don't like that. And we think that's bad. And we want you to stop this and give us your membership list. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it, it, it's funny because if you're listening, you're like, isn't, don't you want people to join your party? And like, well, to, exactly. Uh, believe, like, I tweeted, like, that's so the they're funny trying to thing say this. And of this. course, the Greens were like, no, we're not going to give you our membership list. One that's ridiculous, right? Like, why would yeah. a party share that with another party? And two, even if they wanted to for some sick reason, there's like, that would violate our members' privacy. Our members did not mm-hmm. give away their, did not consent to that, to have their, their members given to another party. I don't even think the BC Greens necessarily share with the federal Greens. I don't even yeah. think they do necessarily. So they they um they obviously got called out on that. And yeah, you're right. It's basically like, oh, we got this exciting young woman. She's running for us. Yeah, she's got maybe a more environmentalist, a more leftist vision than the guy running. But like, it's it represents a, a notable constituency within our party. She's bringing in new members, and they're like, this is bad. It's kind of like what they tried to do with Lascaris, if we're being honest yeah, with the yeah. federal greens, where there was all of this like this this like crying and moaning and and and, and you know, like wetting themselves <laughs> over the <laughs> fact that Lascaris was signing up people and he wasn't a traditional green, like he was he was notably to the left. Like he was he was an environmentalist, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And all of that, and then bam, all of a sudden, like, they're flipping out about it. And of course he doesn't win, but he almost wins, right? He comes close. Um, And that's what we're seeing in BC right now, where they're effectively either trying to find some reason to disqualify her, not just beat her, not just out-organize her, not use the fact that, frankly, all of the institutional levers within the party are organized against her, right? This is like as close to a coronation-type race as you're going to get. Right where there's one member of the caucus running, they have a bunch of endorsements. Uh, they have. Uh, I'm assuming they're gonna. They have or are going to get a lot of labor support. But in addition, one of the most hypocritical pieces of, you know, BS in this whole thing is a, a is there was a a letter that came out from a union asking its members to sign up to vote in the leadership race, right? Mm, to defeat yeah. Anjali, to defeat her. The, the, the insurgent canon, not even a, people say I, the, 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 the person who's an NDP member who wants to be leader, right? Like, yeah, she's so not they, even verified no. to be like a candidate. Yeah, like it's hilarious. Yeah, the and steps, so she right? want, so they're like, we need to join and defeat her. And then they say in their letter, they say in their letter, you don't need to remain an NDP member. You don't need to do that. We just need you to join and wow, ensure Jesus. that this radical environmentalist, because I think this union, uh, and I don't think it represents the broader union. I think it might have been a local. But they basically come out and say, we just want you to stop this person. Because you need to stop this person because she doesn't understand the needs of like logging workers and things like that. And the the, the current NDP, the, the prospective NDP leader, while not perfect, understands it a lot better. And so we want him to be premier. And then they say in it, you don't need to stay a member, which is exactly what they're accusing all of those imaginary green fucking supporters of doing, which is to say you have people running and they're trying to run to achieve a certain result, which is to elect a leader and then leave if uh, either in general or if that that leader, you know, doesn't win. Right. Like, man, Christo, this is rough, man. So it makes the NDP look really bad. Right. The BC NDP in particular. But it's like. Like, why would you want to reject members? Why would it, you- it not only makes them look bad, it like spits in the face of what you're mentioning there. Just the core principles that I think a lot of people flock to the NDP for this idea that you can, you know, grassroots and really be a representative of, you know, people's needs, that this this is a party that can can really give a voice to classes of people that are not considered and we can rally together and do that and keep working and the fact that they're not willing like they're already way ahead it's already close to a coronation from looking here in some of these vancouver sun articles but they're yeah. still not willing to just shore up the you know the tools of governance that they've already had set up for years and years to try to answer this and maybe be better for it is just like it's it's embarrassing but it also kind of hurts me as 
as someone who supported the NDP to think like, okay, wow, what this is this is yeah, this is one of the most of embarrassing the things I've seen from like our party, right? Because like, look, we've yeah. done some, and the BCND, like, look, I I guess I should clarify, like, the BCNDP has, has been shit to Indigenous people and all of that. That's clearly much worse. But yeah. in terms of like internal party operations. Like this is just of politics, this is you know, terrible. of actual politics here. Like know? even the federal NDP who let's say like maybe they don't want someone like Nikki Ashton to win. Like this never happened. Yeah, this never fucking happened. I, ne- I, I never saw something where like Nikki had all of her members who might have been young socialists. Maybe they were in other socialist parties or were all of this. And, you know, I, I saw some people do it to sing. Based on yeah, racist, was thinking re- when, yeah, when, on when racist remarks, up. actually, that's that's somewhat, but it wasn't like this, and it wasn't from the party apparatus in the same way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I mm-hmm. saw some people kind of complain that, oh, basically, the, the Sikhs of Canada are getting together to make Singh leader. And it's like, it's not fair or, or it's a yeah, bad decision. It's not and, fair that there's a, a candidate that can speak to, yeah. you know, an immigrant reality. That's not yeah. fair. That's it's not, not good. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's not, it's not <laughs> fair. So, I mean, I think that, you know, I hope she gets to run. I hope she wins, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just hope she gets to run. Like a lot of people are, are dealing with this, right? Like members have gotten emails from people basically accusing them of not being real NDPers. You have some people who Man. have... Um, um, you've had some people who have like, you know, I've been a volunteer in the last couple elections just for, for whatever reason, I wasn't a a member of the party, which of course, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, right? Not everyone is a, is a member, right? But mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It just, it's, it's, it's one of the more insulting things I've seen. Like, you know, it's, it's not even about whether she wins or loses, right? Like it, like, you know what I mean? Like at this point, it's like, she's not, <laughs> she is not <laughs> like, she's not even being given a chance right right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, First of all, if she wins, how fucked is that going to, you know what I mean? Clearly, (laughs) like, like, how's that going to, how's that going to work? Like the party didn't just have a soft favorite with the guy they knew. Like there's clearly institutional levers being pulled to like stop her from running, Mm -hmm. you know? It's interesting to mirror this to the uh, election or you know, the leadership race that we were just talking about in Alberta, wherein we have an opportunity here for a candidate who, uh, looking at some of her, her <laughs> rhetoric sure is, a great is tweet not here. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe they're being sarcastic here, but there's a tweet here on Twitter where they're like, and the NDP staffers are like, and Jolly was able to recruit 10,000 new members. I bet most of them are from the green party who have 3,500 members, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like there aren't that many BC greens. Like there's a lot of BC yeah. green voters. I mean, they get a lot of votes, right? They're like mm-hmm. the, I believe the, the, the third most second or third most successful provincial green party, depending on how you define it. You know what I mean? The PPI clearly the biggest, not in size, obviously, but they have the most seats and they're, they're the opposition in, in PEI. But, you know, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just, it's wild. It's wild, yeah, it's, man. I, I, but I was just wondering, like that comparison to what's happening in Alberta to see that there was a candidate that represented something that would be close to the extremes of that ideology that rose to it. The thing that I was talking about, at least having and uh, this uh, BC NDP candidate, uh, for what I'm seeing here, isn't, you know, the most, she's definitely not from seeing uh, totally socialist or anything close to that. But the idea that we could have had an answer, perhaps, to what was happening in Alberta the thing that I was talking about, that maybe there could be a swing in the pendulum to see how one party, you know, reinforces and, and helps the uh, quote unquote crazies of the conservative party uh, come to leadership head. But in B.C., they're using everything they can to make sure anything close to a socialist can't even be given a chance. So like, how is that supposed to work? How are we ever supposed to get something that can answer the conservative extremism in this country? If like you said, Christo, all of these major party mechanisms are designed to make sure a basically close to neoliberal candidate keeps winning in BC, that that government, that that efficiency just, just keeps going on. Like, it's just, 
it's more than upsetting. It's it's demoralizing a little bit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hopefully, you know, she, like you said, she will get past this. It'd be hilarious if she wins. If she does win, we'll do whatever we can to get her on the show because I think she'll have a lot to say and we want to hear from her. Yep. But uh, anything else on this before we do our final stop in Quebec? Yeah, I just it's just it's just wild, man. It's just it's one of the more disappointing things I've seen from the NDP. There you go. So speaking of disappointing, uh, there was an election in Quebec. Don't know if you you all hear about it. We were in between shows, so we weren't able to cover it right when it was happening. But uh, Francois Legault, correct? I always say it incorrectly. Yeah, Am I, I right? I, yeah, Legault is probably, yeah. I think you, Close you enough for this, mostly, this, yeah. this damn Anglo. He had a huge win. You know, it's been a, a massive victory. Uh, some of the questions we got from our Discord were specifically regarding... Quebec Solidaire and just the idea of the the province's cohesion where that that battle between um, Anglos and, and Francophone writings is perhaps not as much of a battleground as it was before. You know, let's talk first on Legault. This was expected. Uh, anything interesting about this outcome here? Um, not really. Yeah. I mean, like this was pretty expected. And the polls, I don't think, did a bad job even. I think that it's one of those instances where, like, this was even more even more of a predictable outcome in some ways than the, um, than the last, uh, than the last provincial election here in Ontario, where, like, Ford was clearly winning. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. like, maybe there were some instances, some early polling where maybe he could have lost, like, you know, a little bit before the election. This was pretty pretty big. I mean, the, the question was always going to be like who finishes second and blah, blah, blah. And you, I think that was largely still known with seats that the Quebec liberals, despite the fact that I believe they finished fourth in votes because they do have such a reliable base in, in certain parts of Montreal with like the largely Anglo, Anglo population, um, they were able to kind of just easily hold on. Right. And, 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 mm-hmm. and, and keep that second. But the, the, it, there, it really wasn't surprising. It really wasn't mm-hmm. like the they, they were going to win. You know, what you saw was a big collapse in the liberal vote, uh, but they didn't lose that many seats. Like they lost 10, 10, 10 and a half points, uh, which and they only had, you know, they've gone from basically in the mid 20s to the mid teens. They went from 27 seats down to 21. You saw Quebec Solidaire, despite the fact that they lost just about a point, three quarters of a point in the vote. They gained one seat uh, mm-hmm. and the uh, Parti Québécois lost just a couple points in their vote, but they lost over half their seats. They went from seven to three. Uh, and so, and the Quebec Conservative Party, a new kind of party, they they got 12% of the vote, but didn't win a single seat, mm-hmm. right? Love uh, our system, eh? Isn't it yeah. great? <laughs> so yeah, this was very much a first-past-the-post election. I mean, Legault won clearly, like, look, even in a proportional system, they got way more than any yeah. other party. I mean, they got 41% of the vote. Um, you know, the next closest party, got, again, got, got 15 Right. So they're clearly well over two times bigger, almost three times bigger than the next biggest party. So clearly they did they did have the most support, but they got a mega super duper majority. Um, and it's because of first past the post and all mm-hmm. of that BS. What and do we think about it, Quebec Solidaire? I mean, I think that they have to find a way to engage with with uh, Anglophones. And clearly yeah. they haven't they haven't done that. Right. They have not done mm. that. And um, at this point, I think that's a big issue. They also have to find a way of engaging with, you know, the broader francophone francophonie outside of 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 their of their their strongholds. I, I don't know uh, what they have to do to get that done, but clearly they haven't done so yet. Right. I, I don't know. Mm. I, 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 a big issue is like they're sort of stuck because on a lot of the issues they like, you know, it's difficult. A lot of their, their Anglo and non, uh, you know, Allo, which is you know, non quite Anglo or Franco base, you know, doesn't support like, you know, some of the, the cultural bills that the CAQ have put forward. But many Francophones, even ones that are progressive on other issues do. And uh, I don't know what their path forward is. I mean, I've seen some people say that clearly they need to do a better job with Anglophones. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's their way to try to challenge the Quebec liberals. I've seen other people say, though, that the Anglos might be difficult because they have a kind of sovereigntist position and that's kind of non-negotiable for a lot of Anglos. And so they need to really double down on eating into the broader Francophone vote, which is, you know, that the CAQ dominates. They got to find some way of challenging the CAQ, 
right? You know, because they're a mm -hmm. right wing party, but you know, like you know, there or at least a right of center party. But a lot of those people who vote CAQ vote liberal federally or or whatever, so they're not necessarily ideologically far right people. And so it's like they got to find a way to get to those folks. But uh, right now, there's no one has an answer for Lego. Like no one does. Is, he, yeah. Yeah. He, well, I'm he, just wondering just uh, for my edification here, uh, how is uh, Quick Solidaire on some of those culture issue things? Because I know on the show a lot we talk about how when it comes to those sort of issues in Quebec, there is a different perspective that is, you know, storied and, and definitely has a basis in the makeup of that province that doesn't mirror what we've seen here in Ontario, where you can have, you know, a, a perhaps a much more progressive economic uh, output and, and, and belief system, but believe certain things that would not be considered progressive uh, culturally here in Ontario. Uh, to your knowledge, how is Quebec Solidaire on some of those issues, which I, mean, I will I say are, are important, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I, they were sort of, they found it difficult. I think like I'm not uh, yeah. super versed on it, but they found it difficult. I think to balance a lot of those issues uh, around secularism and stuff. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, they were, um, you know, they, 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 I think they found it really difficult to, to fully go in with that because a lot of their prospective voters do see it like legitimately they don't see it as a kind of like backdoor to attack uh minorities and and, and muslims mm -hmm. and sikhs in particular or what have you they see it as like a legitimate issue of like of like you know uh secularism and promoting women's yeah. equality and things like that right a very almost, you know, that, yeah, that that secular atheistic approach to a morality that doesn't consider perhaps the things that we've talked about here, that in implementation, these laws are actually quite racist and unfair in that way. But I think maybe that divide and then trying to connect with not to say that these groups have just generally these opinions, right? Like, I want to make sure yeah. that's clear. But I do wonder if that does affect some of the um, access or success for Solidaire with the Anglophones in uh, Quebec. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's difficult because on the one hand, you have some of those communities to maybe see a lot of these parties as like not open to to non to non francophones. And then if mm -hmm. you know, have parties that are even if they're kind of tolerating these positions, they become unpopular. It, it could also be like apparently just like logistically, like their website didn't have an English section or didn't have a very good English section. And these are the sorts of things that likely don't help you when you're trying to reach Anglophones, like, like little things like that. Right. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I mean, I think the party has to think about what it wants to do, what it sees its path to victory as, and they have to pick that path. Um, because right now they're not doing for whatever reason, they're not appealing to the broadest portion of the Francophones and they're not challenging the liberals on Anglophones right now. And I think that's a big issue. Alrighty, so we're just we're closing up the show here. Thank you all for taking some time out of your busy week to listen to us talk. Once again, looking at the landscape of Canadian politics, it does seem like we are uh, not pitfalling, but at least tumbling towards some uh, extremism and conservatism that needs to be answered. So I wanted to end with a question from VMARS. And again, if you want to do that, just join a little community there on the Discord. VMARS asks, what is your best prediction for how many years until every Western nation is run by a fascist government? And I think they're relating to, obviously, the elections in Italy that happened within the last month and maybe what's happening in the UK. Uh, for me, I do think that there will be some major holdouts. So I, I don't think we'll have something that you could be identified as a quote unquote fascist in many of these Western nations for years. So I, I'm going to say at least a 10 year period where that doesn't happen before we just go fascist socialist back and forth. I'm if not we're sure lucky. exactly. I definitely think that you're seeing a move to the right, but you've seen that some other countries in recent years, like you just saw the, the labor party win in, in New Zealand and, you know, mm -hmm. you see the the like the Republicans making some gains, probably, but not nearly as much as parties often expect to do at the midterms. So I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. 
I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if the, the move towards fascism is inevitable. You see, like, the conservative... And again, I'm not calling Keir Starmer's Labour Party left-wing by any means. But you <laughs> see, like, how quickly the people have turned on the right in Britain. And so I'm not yeah. exactly sure. Um, but I definitely think we are moving to the right. Uh, and you will see more extreme versions of the right wing. But I don't think the entirety of, like, the Western world is going to go fascist uh, at this point. Yeah, so at least a little more hope yeah. at the end here. I, I do wonder if we will see you know, the Western world and the global South go reach that that socialist uh, governance that a lot, so many of those countries have in the last few years, kind of in response to the degradations of the West there. Like, it, it is interesting to look at Canada's place in that ongoing uh, risk game. So anyways, folks, please, again, send us a message if you want Left Turn Canada at Gmail. Dot com got some great emails and I think in the next week or so we'll be looking at some of the municipal races we've actually got some emails from candidates that you know want us to to highlight them so if you have a candidate that you think is great in your city and that you just know of uh, close to you that that is a really wonderful one please tell us and we want to highlight that uh, anything else Christo? no we're good have a good one everybody